Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora. U.S. stocks end sharply lower on a late sell-off on Monday. Oil falls below $88 per barrel and Hong Kong unexpectedly takes over the U.S. as top destination for Chinese shipments. But not everyone is convinced that the flows were genuine. We'll discuss all of this and more this morning on Money for Nothing with our guest host, Andrew Sullivan. We'll also speak with Jay Loff, who is the president of Ports.com about how to build a news platform for the digital era. And in our final segment, John O'Sullivan, Managing Director of Tourism Australia, will talk about how Australia is prioritizing tourism as an asset class. First, a look at uh, today's top stories. Hong Kong unexpectedly has taken over the U.S. as top destination for Chinese shipments, but not everyone is convinced that the flows were genuine. Analysts said that over-invoicing and over-reporting might explain the 34% surge in exports to Hong Kong from a year earlier. U.S. stocks finished sharply lower as worries about global growth again weighed on the market a day ahead of major company earnings releases. Key technical uh, key technical levels were in focus, especially as there was no data on the economic calendar and bond markets were closed for the Columbus Day holiday. The Dow was down one and a third percent at sixteen thousand three hundred and twenty. The S and P five hundred sank one point six percent to one thousand eight hundred and seventy four, while the tech rich Nasdaq slumped nearly one point five percent to four thousand two hundred and thirteen. All of the main benchmarks are now trading below their 200-day moving average. Volatility appears to be the name of the game, and it brings up the question as to whether the Fed will delay raising interest rates. Here's what Mohammed El Aryan has to say. He, of course, is the former PIMCO CEO and currently the chief economic advisor at Allianz. The Fed and others are worried about the weaker global economic outlook, especially as the balance of risks is on the downside. And secondly, they also don't want equity markets to correct too quickly, and therefore they're coming out with reassuring comments. Having said that, there was another comment this weekend that was really interesting out of Washington, and that came from Mrs. Lagarde, the IMF Managing Director, when she said, be careful of the disconnect between too little economic risk-taking and too much financial risk-taking. And that's the problem. Unless the global economy picks up, then keeping asset prices up for the sake of having them higher is not going to work. Elarian warns that we should look out for volatility in the market. The main price setter, he says, is not the Fed. Normally what would happen is the Fed is reassuring, interest rates are lower, and that would attract money from the sideline into the market. But something happened last week in addition to the price decline. There was significant volatility. If you add up the daily moves in the Dow up and down, you had movements above 10% of the index. And this volatility tends to act against the reassuring words of the Fed and against the push impact of lower interest rates. So keep an eye on volatility, because if volatility does not come down, new cash will not, will not go into the market like it has in the past. The main mover of the market right now is not economic prospects, they're not going to change much. It's not policies, that's not going to change much. It's how much cash gets committed to the market. If new cash gets committed, then we're going to have what we've had in the past, which is a very shallow um, correction, and then we continue up. If, however, the the cash that's on the sideline, and there's lots of it, if the cash is on on the sideline doesn't come in, 
then, then you get a loss correction because the main price setter is this idle cash. Markets in Europe were little changed. The FTSE 100 was up uh, 26 points to 6,366. The CAC 40 almost flat at 4,078 and the DAX up 23 points to close at 8,812. Asian markets were in the red, although the Hang Seng edged up 54 points to close at 23,143. Brent crude oil fell below $88 a barrel overnight, its lowest price in almost four years. However, as Robert Kemp reports, demand from China may stop prices falling too far. Saudi Arabia has reportedly privately told oil market participants it can accept oil prices between $80 and $90 a barrel, and the organisation of the Petroleum Exporting Countries Cartel, of which it is a member, is due to discuss outputs at a meeting next month. But growth in China's exports and imports trumped forecasts in September, and the world's largest energy consumer increased crude imports by 9.5% from August, lending limited support to prices. China often increases imports to bolster its reserves when prices are low and real demand growth is likely to be more modest. Well, Asian markets are open now. The Nikkei is down one and three quarter of a percent to 15,032. Australia's ASX index down three tenth of, excuse me, up three tenth of a percent to 5,169. And Seoul's Kospi also up three tenth of a percent to 1,933. I'd like to bring in my co-host now, Andrew Sullivan. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. So, Andrew, volatility has ruled the market thus far in October this month. And, of course, investors are wondering if that is going to change when corporate earnings seasons gets underway this week. What do you think? Well, I think it's probably the corporate earnings are going to add a little bit more volatility. I mean, at the moment, investors have been looking at the, the macro data, and we've seen that weakness in Germany, which has obviously been a big concern for the euro area. Uh, concerns over what Draghi's going to do with his policy going forward and the uh, potential for QE. But at the same time, he's warning that you know, that may not be enough and he needs to see reform from the government. So there's a lot there out there on, on people's minds. And the earnings coming through you know, in the next uh, few weeks is just going to add to that concerns, I think. Yeah, you're right to be concerned about uh, sort of the news coming out of Europe. Uh, uh, arguably, neither the Fed's interest rate plan nor volatility are topmost on the list of concerns concerns for bankers, the real, the, the real cause for concern appears to be Europe. Um, let's listen to a clip from Andrew Balls, who is the CIO for Global Fixed Income at PIMCO. He says that Europe has been weak for several years, and now it's no longer a situation of the core versus the periphery. Growth at the moment is around uh, zero. Italy's uh, in recession. Uh, we think it will, uh, over the next four quarters, will be a little bit above um, uh, zero. Uh, today, Spain is uh, one of the, the stronger uh, growing countries. Italy, I said, uh, in recession. France and Germany close to zero. Germany relies on growth abroad um, to drive its growth, it export demand, um, uh, investment goods. And so the idea that uh, Europe can slow and, uh, and Asia can slow and Germany continue to, uh, to have strong growth is, is not something that adds up. Uh, so, you know, the fact that it's not, uh, it's not just the... Uh, the periphery also have um, weakness on, at the core as well, just shows the extent of the, the ECB challenge. And, you know, uh, other than for some German commentators, the logic of doing quantitative easing in, in Europe. So, Andrew, do you believe that Europe is already in recession? 
Well, I think he's right. And I think the other thing that he didn't mention that worth noting, though, obviously a lot of German exports went to Russia and there are sanctions against Russia at the moment, so that's hurting them as well. So, you know, we, we've got this massive slowdown. We've still got the Germans being, um, you know, resolute in balancing their budget next year. So they're going to continue tightening uh, to balance that budget uh, and that's going to cause them to go into recession. And, and that has been the major driver. Uh, it's interesting to see, you know, the UK, you know, taking a slightly different fork there. But at the end of the day, you know, the, the UK is more about a service industry rather than a you know, manufacturing industry. So the slowdown in manufacturing is going to hurt. So this is going to hurt everyone everywhere, not just the US, us here in Asia? Well, yes, because, I mean, again, you know, China, we had good trade data out yesterday, but a lot of that uh, exports going to, to Europe and to the US is going to see slowing as, as things go forward. So we shouldn't be over-exuberant about the Chinese uh, export numbers? No, I think, I think we have to be cautious there because, I mean, if we remember for the last sort of 18 months, two years, we've been talking about the Chinese government's policy of trying to uh, create domestic demand. And certainly from those numbers yesterday, we weren't seeing that coming through. So, Andrew, how would you advise uh, investors to work around their portfolios? Should they be selling? Should they be holding? What should they be doing? Well, I think it's, it's back to the same theme of, of finding good quality names uh, and, and buying those, accumulating those on, on the pullbacks. Uh, certainly, the, the problem that a lot of investors will have is while interest rates are near zero, there is very little money, very little point in keeping your money in the bank. And as, uh, you know, the... the uh, uh, was saying earlier from the fact that there is all that money on the sidelines it's because mm -hmm. there is that people are looking for something else to do with it they don't want it sitting there they want to try and protect the growth so they have to invest in the markets that's why these markets don't come up as off as heavily as they should do but if you're going to invest it's a matter of finding the good companies um, you know we, we've looked at the the property companies in China recently uh, and there it's you know there's a lot of divergence between the good ones and you know we've got companies like agile down 30 percent at yesterday Today's open and closing, you know, down 17%, which are on the warning side. But there are other good companies there that continue to bring, you know, show good earnings. So investors still need to be very cautious, do their homework, uh, and, and go with the companies that are transparent, good management, and good product. Yeah, I think it's really hard to, you know, for the lay investor to understand sort of what is the good company and what isn't. I mean, you mentioned Agile, but the fact that it's down, does that not present an opportunity to buy? Well, it does, it, you know, if you're just following momentum and hoping that it's going to rebound. But then if you dig a little bit deeper, I mean, one of the reasons it's down is there are concerns about the chairman. He's being investigated. Um, there have always been, you know, rumours about it being involved in money laundering. And certainly with the crackdown in China on, you know, corruption generally through the system, you know, people have got to be a lot more careful going forward. Another classic uh, Chinese corporate governance story. Um, so should we be avoiding, you know, putting that sideline money in stocks perhaps that are ex of companies that are export oriented well certainly yeah we're you know we're, we're talking about the u.s seeing steady but slow growth so yes companies that have got overseas earnings uh, and typically as you say exports probably to the u.s more than to uh, to europe are going to come much more in focus but also remaining with you know good blue chip companies here in hong kong certainly on days where we see uh, you know the market seeing knee-jerk selling then it's a good time to start accumulating those good blue chips. Okay, thanks, Andrew. Uh, one uh, opportunity to look
look out for in the future might be Jimmy Choo, luxury shoemaker, which expects its initial share sale to be priced between 140 pence and 160 pence a share. The bottom half of its preliminary guidance uh, of 140 to 180 pence. Robert Kemp has more. The price range would value the company, which is aiming to list a 25% stake in London, at up to £624 million, which is below the initial top target of £702 million. Weaker equity markets have recently hit demand for new issues in Europe, with French energy services firm Spee and Italian cosmetics firm Intercos failing to attract enough demand for their initial public offerings, resulting in both of them being pulled last week. Fund managers have also expressed concern that Jimmy Choo has around £100 million of debt and has spent a lot of money on opening new shops, around 8% of its sales, while the industry average was 5%. A Reuters source says the books for Jimmy Choo's IPO were covered throughout the new price range, with strong interest from long-only investors and sovereign wealth funds. A quick look at the numbers. One euro currently buys you 1.27 US dollars. The US yen is at 107 and one pound buys you 12.46 Hong Kong dollars. Gold remains steady at $1,235 per ounce and Brent crude oil is currently at $88.89. Well, we'll be back to look at more about uh, digital media online. That's right after this. News website Quartz.com has managed to build up a formidable online readership in the two years since it launched. Jay Loff, the company president, explains in an interview with uh, Chris Oliver how the site managed to attract six million unique monthly readers, even as it pioneered a unique approach to content and advertising. Chris, over to you. Good morning, Renita. Uh, The site is owned by the U.S.-based publishing group that also puts out The Atlantic. The Quartz model uses what they call advertising-supported journalism. My belief when we started this was we had a clean palette to paint, uh, a clean canvas to paint on. And rather than default to the old tricks of most websites, which are cacophony of choices, was to actually make the advertising part of the read. And so as you scroll through Quartz, all of our advertising is sort of big, beautiful, oversized advertising that sits between the articles. Instead of traditional advertising, Quartz relies on sponsored content. For example, there's a series of articles that profile GE's involvement in helping India reduce its reliance on foreign oil and gas. Uh, These news-like stories are put out by Quartz's marketing team rather than their editorial staff. In the past, Boeing has also been an advertiser. Too many, uh, not just newspapers, but too many websites have gone to the lowest common denominator, the most commoditized um, advertising units, ad networks and and, and the like, uh, to try to monetize their pages versus trying to create a richer experience and maybe collect uh, a, a better price for the advertising. Quartz doesn't charge a subscription fee. Instead, their strategy was to attract what they call premium readers. That are those are people who want uh, global business stories with an edge. For example, the China slowdown has been among the top click foreign stories for U.S.-based readers. And more recently, Hong Kong has been in the headlines. So the Hong Kong story has been consistently at the top of the list for us over the last couple of weeks. If you look at, um, you know, uh, page views to a story, obviously traffic to specific stories. 
uh, so a a Hong Kong uh, a um, Occupy Central story will typically be in the top two or three uh, almost every single day. Um, and when you aggregate all those stories, it is certainly the most um, read story overall on, on Quartz currently. Quartz's success comes against a background where major U.S. newspapers have been struggling. That comes even as more and more people are reading online. Uh, for its part, Quartz is more or less breaking even at this point, uh, and the, the group believes it's on track to become profitable in about a year. That's even as they add to expenses by building out a global network of reporters. Now, Jay Lauf, he spoke with me in Hong Kong uh, in last week, and he said his advice to locals or individuals thinking about uh, expanding into digital publishing in Asia is to consider the experience of readers when they engage a story online. Uh, he doesn't like in-your-face pop-up ads. Uh, another core theme is to focus on the growth of smartphones. The world is getting increasingly mobile, and the screen's going to keep you know, shrinking down to maybe a phablet size someday, but you've got to be building for mobile devices uh, and not the desktop. Another source of income for the group are special market research products and, of course, conferences, which is a growing area for publishers around the world. Uh, in November, Quartz will host a conference based on the growth of mobile devices in emerging markets. Um, now, just it's interesting just to have a look, to step back and have a look at where they've come from. In two years, they've grown to 6 million uh, monthly readers, and about a million of those come from emerging markets. That's from Asia and from uh, South America primarily. Thank you, Chris. The time is now 8.20. Sometimes sounds are impressive. <laughs> I hear the sounds of life. I hear the pulse of a vibrant city. Sometimes I hear noises that are annoying. But they can become a concerto when they're put together. Relish and listen with an open heart. You may realize what you hear. Respect different values. Embrace different voices. Australia is looking to ride its tourism boom, and that means offering investment opportunities in hotels and other tourism infrastructure to help accommodate an expected influx of visitors. About 50 billion Australian dollars worth of projects are currently underway. Much of this figure represents outlays in aviation, including new aircraft to help bolster Bolster Airlinks. Joining us to discuss this is John O'Sullivan. He is the Managing Director of Tourism Australia and he visits Hong Kong for the two-day hospitality investment conference. Good morning, John. Good morning, Rahita. How are you? Well, thank you. And John, what is, uh, what is the hospitality investment conference and why is it important for Hong Kong investors? High Cap, as it's uh, affectionately known amongst the hotel community, is one of the world's leading investment uh, forums for hotel development. It sees a collection of private investors, uh, publicly listed companies, hotel operators and national tourism organisations such as ourselves come to Hong Kong and, and talk about what are the opportunities available in our case for Australia. 
Now, when you talk about private investors, are these angels? Are they VCs? Tell us more. It's look. It's a combination of it's a combination of and collection of different parties that are that are involved. We have meetings uh, over the next few days with uh, companies such as Far East, um, a gentleman by the name of Tony Fung, who's got significant investments in in Australian uh, hotel investments and and hotel operators. So it's a collection collection of people who would like to invest in the tourism industry, who'd like to operate hotels, and who are in some cases maybe actually seeking to enter the um, enter the industry for the first time. So when you say they'd like to operate hotels, we're talking about active participation, not just uh, passive investment. That's right. And, you know, you have the you obviously have the big hotel operators up here, such as IHG, uh, also Accor, Hilton and alike, but then you also have, uh, as we said before, investors who are looking at uh, new sites and new developments and for around the world, not just Australia. Now, uh, John, tell us a little bit more about the market in general. Of course, Australia is a great place to visit on a holiday, but uh, what is the appeal from an investment point of view? Look, I think the appeal from an investment point of view in tourism is that, that our numbers are very good and the numbers of international visitors particularly grew by about 8% last year. Uh, interestingly, their spend also grew by a corresponding amount of money, so there's about $30 billion. The second thing is that it's a government priority. Uh, tourism's been identified as one of the five super industries of the Australian economy moving forward along with international education, agribusiness, banking and also gas. And the third thing is, as STI Global have reported, that all of our capital cities offer uh, occupancy rates of close on or just above 80%. Uh, and also very healthy rev pars of around about one hundred and one hundred and sixty dollars. Andrew, what do you think? Does the, the do you find appeal in the idea of investing in Australian tourism? Well, certainly it seems to be a good idea at the moment, and I think you know currency is another thing that's working in your favour. Is that right? Yeah, the currency. Look, the Australian dollars uh, come off its what has been a pretty high period or pretty high run, uh, and so that should be favourable, particularly for domestic spend within the country. And, and we were just talking earlier there about uh, you know new new um, new schemes that you're up to. So what what's new on the horizon this time up? Look, one of the things we'll be unveiling at HiCap is uh, is a new digital tool for potential investors uh, in conjunction with the Australian Trade Commission, uh, which will really provide an opportunity, by a digital-led opportunity um, prospectus, if you like, of investment-ready tourism tourism sites within the country. We'll also be talking about our latest marketing campaign, which is built around food and wine, which we know is a very strong driver of travel uh, internationally. And who's travelling, actually? Is, is there a specific population that you're seeing us, you know, visit Look, Australia more? We, what we're seeing is, particularly out of Asia, is a, tr- a move towards the independent traveller. Um, traditionally, the Australian tourism uh, market has been built on groups out of this part of the world. We're now seeing the rise of, a, of an independent traveller. Uh, shorter stays, norm- and particularly out of Southeast Asia, we're also seeing an, an increase in towards of self-drive holidays. Uh, and generally, the age group's around 25 to 39. Now, do you, is there a particular country focus? Are you seeing more people from China or Hong Kong or, you know, any other country? Our largest source market in terms of numbers is actually New Zealand, and it's just over a million people. But our fastest growing, our fastest growing market is actually mainland China, which grew by about fifteen percent last year, and we think within the next three years will be 
uh, ahead of New Zealand. Uh, then that's followed by our traditional markets out of the United Kingdom and the US. Hong Kong itself is our 10th most um, source market, almost 200,000 uh, visitors from this market, and they spend approximately a billion dollars. And what do you think is accounting for the growth of uh, Chinese visitors to Australia? What our research is telling us is that they love our world-class natural beauty, uh, they like our food and wine, and also as well the attractions that a lot of our capital cities provide. But is it just that? I mean, the Chinese have been known to uh, embark on something called you know, real estate tourism, and traditionally to places where they have emigrated you know, in the past, Australia being a classic example. So the numbers, the inflow numbers, is it purely you know, holidayers, so holiday goers, or are you actually uh, well, look, seeing people look at real estate? Yeah, well, look, about 70, 70% of the visitor numbers are either VFR or holiday, which is basically what we define as leisure tourists. Uh, the other thing to also add, I think, importantly, is that the aviation increase and in links between uh, mainland China and Australia now is very, very strong. Uh, you have three Chinese carriers operating daily services into to Sydney, Melbourne, uh, you know, also Brisbane and also Perth. Uh, and as well, we, there is a strong connection between the two countries in areas such as international education uh, and also increasingly investment. So it's a myriad of factors that's been driving that demand. Andrew, for the layperson who is looking to diversify their portfolio, would this be considered an alternative investment? Oh, it's certainly an alternative investment, and I think probably people with larger portfolios will look at this as maybe an alternative to property, certainly with uh, Hong Kong property prices as high as they are and concerns about growth of interest rates, then it's something that comes up onto the agenda. But I guess it's the size of investment that, that you guys are looking mm. at that, that varies so much. So what's the sort of span that you look well, at? Look, it, it can range from the tens of millions of dollars to the hundreds of millions of dollars. We've seen a big increase in um, smaller investors going into boutique properties, uh, particularly luxury lodges types of accommodation, so places such as uh, Southern Ocean Lodge in Kangaroo Island, um, uh, Sapphire down in Frasier in Tasmania, they're generally around sort of, you know, in those tens of millions of dollars. But then we've also seen uh, much larger investors um, look at hundreds of millions of dollars of investment or in the case of Tony Fong with the Aquarius development up in uh, tropical North Queensland, uh, billions of dollars. Is there any such thing as a fund perhaps that you might roll out that uh, might make it more amenable for the lay investor to invest in smaller units? Look, our job is really about um, facilitating the, the investment decision to angels, companies, operators uh, and those investors. We're not in the business of uh, rolling out uh, financial um, you know, funds or uh, devices such as that. Okay, thank you so much. That's John O'Sullivan, and he's the Managing Director of Tourism Australia. And thank you to Andrew Sullivan, my co-host this morning. Andrew, quickly before we depart, anything that we should be looking out for this week? And uh, before we close, let's take a quick look at the numbers. Uh, the Nikkei is open. It is down 2% to 14,967. Australia's ASX index up three-tenths of a percent to 5,172. And Seoul's Kospi up one percent, um, excuse me, one-tenth of a percent to 1,930. A quick look at the weather forecast before we depart. It'll be mainly fine and dry, slightly cooler this morning with a maximum maximum temperature of around 29 degrees during the day. Currently, the temperature is 23 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 57%. It's now almost 8.30 and it's time for the half-hour news summary with Samantha Butler. 
Police officers in Causeway Bay have removed some barricades put up by pro-democracy protesters around the Sogo department store. Just before dawn, television pictures showed lines of police carrying shields lined up at the side of the road, where demonstrators have occupied the streets for more than two weeks. The protesters later held a press conference. Our reporter Maggie Ho was there. Their main message is that they are not going to move away from Causeway Bay. Although the protest zone had been reduced in size to almost half of what it was originally, they say that they are going to try and call on more protesters, or perhaps some from Admiralty, some from Wanchai, to come here to support uh, their fellow protesters here. And they say that the main concern is not really police officers removing the protesters, but that after police officers weakened their defense here, they say that judging from Yesterday's experience, they are worried that people who are against this movement may come here to cause trouble later in the day. Yesterday, after police removed barricades in Central and Admiralty, there were clashes in Queensway between protesters and groups opposing their action. The pro-democracy Apple Daily newspaper says the High Court has issued a temporary injunction on anyone blocking the gates of its building in Zhongguano. Anti-Occupy protesters have been mounting a blockade of its premises, leading to delays in the delivery of the newspaper, which is owned by tycoon Jimmy Lai. North Korean state media say the country's leader, Kim Jong-un, has visited a newly built housing complex, making his first public appearance in 40 days. The absence of the 31-year-old leader from public view had fueled speculation that he was ill. North Korean newspapers showed pictures of Mr. Kim using a walking stick. The American and British governments are stepping up efforts to fight the spread of the deadly Ebola virus outside West Africa, where it's killed more than 4,000 people. The U.S. has already begun screening for Ebola symptoms at JFK Airport in New York. Britain has announced that it'll begin screening some passengers.